This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. In this episode, we will cover two things, the cleansing of the temple and Jesus' meeting with the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus does something totally unexpected. He has his longest conversation in the gospel with a notorious sinner who is a Samaritan, someone who Jewish people would have regarded as an enemy. I think the story of the cleansing of the temple actually provides a great backdrop of the story of that conversation. It's important to note from the outset that John puts the cleansing of the temple story at the beginning of his account of Jesus' public ministry, while Matthew, Mark, and Luke put it at the end of their account of Jesus' public ministry. Either Jesus cleansed the temple twice, or John told it out of order. Maybe John wanted to show at the beginning where all of his story was going to be headed at the end. Anyway, we'll take his permission and tell the story a little bit out of order today, beginning with the cleansing of the temple and then continuing with his encounter with the woman at the well. So the story goes like this. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle, He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered what was written. Zeal for his house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Matthew, Mark, and Luke put this at the end, or John puts it at the beginning. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have him going to Jerusalem only once, also, at the end of their story of his life. Luke, in fact, makes going to Jerusalem kind of a focal point of his narrative. But John has him going to Jerusalem three times during the story. Like I said, this is not necessarily a contradiction. It's complimentary. We all do this all the time. I can tell the story of my summer vacation to Teddy Roosevelt National Park in three different ways. One, to emphasize how everything went wrong at the beginning. Another, to emphasize what went really well and what I really needed from that vacation and what it gave me. And another, to explain, like, where's a good place to find lunch? Where's a good place to camp? Etc. So in this story, John is explaining how everything went wrong, how much it was needed, and also pointing out what we should do next in our lives. 
It's clear that Jesus went to Jerusalem more than once, at any rate, because we're told explicitly that his family went there yearly. And then when he finally approaches Jerusalem in both Matthew and Luke, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing the prophets and stoning those who are sent to you. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. So he literally says in those other gospels that he has been attempting to go to Jerusalem to gather people around him. But for us, the cleansing of the temple can stand as a testimony to Jesus's anger at religious hypocrisy, both at the beginning and end of his ministry. He hated those who want to appear religious when God is very far from their hearts. Jesus went to the temple and he did not like what he saw. He found in the temple area those who sold oxen, sheep, and doves, as well as the money changers seated there, and he reacted with angry violence. He made a whip out of cords and drove them out of the temple area. Sheep and oxen are bolting everywhere and coins are clattering to the floor and Jesus is hurling tables over shouting, take these out of here and stop making my father's house a marketplace. The gospel quotes Psalm 69, zeal for your house will consume me. So consume is a very dramatic verb. It's as if God is obsessed with his house because he is, why? Because the temple is the dwelling place of God with man. It is the place where he has established us to meet his love. When the Ark of the Covenant appears in Revelation 12, we already talked about it. It looks like Our Lady of Guadalupe. It's the literal dwelling place of God with man, a woman pregnant with Jesus Christ. And the angels revolt, uh, must be driven out when they see it. The devil comes to earth where he sees all of earth, a kind of Eden, like a temple, a place where God can walk with man a place like the Song of Songs where God reaches out to us in love and the serpent seduces us to follow his own way. The flood later cleanses the earth to restore the temple temporarily and the sins of mankind spoil everything again and again in salvation history until the end of the book of Revelation when we dwell in the new Jerusalem for eternity with God among us. But in the meanwhile, whenever we spoil the place where he wants to meet us, God gets angry, violently angry. That's why this line at the very end of the gospel that I read was important. Seeing what he did, people began to believe in him, but he did not trust himself to them because he knew what was in man. Jesus knows us. He knows how fickle we are. He knows how today we love what is right and tomorrow we reject it totally. He knows that we are no better than those that he had to drive out of the temple. We're not just victims of wrong. We're also perpetrators of wrong. But right away, we learn that even more than all of that is at stake. He says, destroy this temple in three days and I will raise it up. The leaders find this statement absurd, but he was speaking of the temple of his body, the gospel tells us. On a different occasion, Jesus will save himself. I tell you, you have one greater than the temple here and mean himself. Jesus saw himself as greater than the meeting place of God and man because he is God and man. And as he puts it, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Paul will develop this idea of Christ the temple even further, calling the church the temple of the living God and telling us that each of us is a temple with the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. The logic is this, Christ is the new temple. We are the body of Christ, therefore we are temples. In the third century AD, Origen of Alexandria would say, 
By the temple we may understand, too, the soul wherein the word of God dwells, in which, before the teachings of Christ, earthly and bestial affections have prevailed. Each of us has to do what Christ did in this gospel. We have to cleanse our temple. How do you cleanse your temple? Well, you make a whip out of cords, overturn the tables of your sin, and then you restore the image of God to its rightful place there in the temple. To do this, we have to get violent with the money changers in our hearts, those parts of us that see God as important, but our career, our entertainment, our comforts, our consumer goods as more important. Overturn their tables. Don't spare any sympathy for the bestial sheep and goats running everywhere. Clear them out. The Ten Commandments are a guide to doing this. The first three are all about fixing our eyes on God and restoring him to his place. And the next seven are about seeing God everywhere. Above all, we serve the image of God in our family, in our father, our mother, our siblings, our children. And that's the fourth commandment. And then we see him in those we would insult or harm or use in some way. And we refrain from killing them. That's the fifth commandment. Then we see God in those we would otherwise want to treat as objects of pleasure by refusing to commit adultery with them even in our hearts. And that's the sixth commandment. Then we stop taking to ourselves possessions and time that belong to others. Stop stealing from the poor even the money that we should be giving them uh, because it all belongs to all of us. And that's the seventh commandment. Do not steal. Then we stop taking away others' good names and what we say about them. And that's the eighth commandment. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Then we stop treating our neighbors like rivals and treat them like brothers and sisters. And that's the ninth and tenth commandment about coveting our neighbor's goods. Anyway, the more we cleanse our temple in this way, the more we find a lovely, peaceful dwelling place with God and not a place where consumerism and greed and sexual conquest are jockeying for position and often winning out against God. Okay, so with that background, we are ready to talk about the woman at the well. This gospel is a long one, and I'll excerpt it to make it a little bit shorter. Jesus left Judea and departed again to Galilee. He had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a city of Samaria, and wearied as he was with his journey, he sat down beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to drink water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. The water that I shall give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and he who you now have is not your husband. This you said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. 
Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He is called the Christ. When he speaks, he will show us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So the woman left her water jar and ran away into the city and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of your words that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. Wow, so here we have the first and most unambiguous declaration of Jesus that he is the Messiah. And who did he declare it to? Not to the Jewish official Nicodemus, not to the crowds, but to a woman who is living with a man who is not her husband. And who becomes the first effective apostle? Not the band of brothers Jesus calls to his side, but this notorious sinner. And he does it, first of all, by talking about what she needs on the natural level, water. Water is a very potent symbol in the ancient world, where much time and therefore consolidation of power was spent securing sources of water, controlling sources of water, and hoping for rain and fearing floods. Water came to symbolize life and death, cleansing and blessing. So when the woman at the well talks to Jesus about living water, they're talking about more than quenching physical thirst. They're talking about quenching a fundamental longing which every human being has. That is why Jesus' conversation so easily moves from give me a drink to geopolitical history, the origins of Jacob's well, to eternal life and the woman's personal relationships. Jesus is pointing the woman to the deepest thirst she has and helping her to see that her life isn't answering it. We all have a deep longing, a longing for everlasting water, for eternal truth that is never exhausted. This is a sign that we are not made for this maze we're living in, but for another world that is underneath it and above it and around it and through it and in it. As C.S. Lewis put it, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. If I discover within myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. End quote. We ache for more. And that ache has an answer. Jesus Christ, true God and true man, capable of becoming in us a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Come and see a man who told me everything I have done, she says. Could he possibly be the Christ? We each meet Jesus in the same way and discover what she did. Here is someone who puts our lives pieces in order, who helps us know who we are and why we were made and where we can find peace. Without Jesus, the woman at the well had a disappointing life, and so do we. The Samaritan woman's heart had been restlessly searching for what could fulfill her. She looked for it in human love with five different husbands. None of them stuck. And now she gave up on marriage altogether to live with a man who was not her husband. She could not find fulfillment and companionship with the women of her village either. 
She's getting water at noon in the heat of the day, not at dawn when women typically used to get water in the ancient world. She's either shunning human society or being shunned by her community, or probably a little bit of both. She has found no help in religion either. She reveals in her conversation with Jesus that she knows the promises of religion. She expects a Christ. But for her, religious practices are something her ancestors did, not something she does. This is how our lives look without a real, living union with Christ. Human love and companionship disappoint us, and even religious faith feels like an empty promise. At first glance, the woman at the well is as unlike Jesus Christ as she can possibly be. She's a woman and a Samaritan at a time when men and women and Jews and Samaritans do not ever mix. But more to the point, she's a notorious sinner, and he is the Holy One, the All-Holy One of God. However, it turns out that God loves to visit unlikely people. He can only work with people who recognize their own powerlessness, people who have been brought to a place of honesty in their life where they realize that they are nothing like God and insignificant without him. That is what it took for the people of Israel we discussed last episode about Nicodemus to meet God, to realize that it was hopeless without him and to gaze upon the bronze serpent. They could not embrace God when they were slaves in Egypt because they were so beaten down that they were just grateful to be given food by their captors. They could only embrace him after they were hungry and thirsty and attacked by serpents in the desert and had no choice but to rely on God, who sent bread from heaven and water from the rock and Moses lifting up the bronze serpent to take their poison away. This is a state we need to be in for God to work with us. We need to be willing to see that we can't ever quench our thirst without God's hand in every aspect of our lives. Someone said that the biggest problem with religion is that it provides complicated answers to questions no one has asked. Uh, This is not true of Jesus. First, he answers the real desire of this woman's heart to slake her thirst for perfect, unconditional love by offering her living water that gives the believer a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The Samaritan woman had her life-changing encounter with Christ by a water well. We have ours by the baptismal font, where, as St. Paul will put it, the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Next, rather than condemn the woman, Jesus respects her conscience, giving her the freedom to see her own faults. You are right in saying, I do not have a husband, he says, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. That sounds like a hard life, but it came about because God gave this woman the freedom to choose for herself. Not only did Jesus tolerate her bad choices, but the story seems to recognize that the bad choices were necessary for the woman to get to a place where she could recognize that she needs Jesus. Freedom brought her to a place where a sin-free existence would never have brought her. Third, Jesus corrects the doctrinal error of the woman while opening her up to a deeper possibility. He answers her Samaritan objections to Judaism by saying salvation is from the Jews, but then adds, The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the woman of the well, that hour was in the future, but for us, that hour is now. In baptism, Jesus Christ has given us infinitely more than he gave this Samaritan woman. But only if we interact with Jesus the way she did. Look at the way the woman 
at the well responded to Jesus Christ. First, she had a real conversation with Jesus, speaking her heart to him. She was honest about her questions. How can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? Are you greater than our father Jacob? And she's sincere in her responses. Sir, give me this water. I have no husband. Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. So in our prayer, we need to imitate the woman at the well and have sincere conversations with Jesus that say what's really on our heart. This sincere prayer leads the woman at the well to share the joy of her encounter with others. Leaving her water jar behind, she hurries into the village and tells people, come, see a man who told me everything I have done. Could he possibly be the Christ? So does our conversation with Jesus, our prayer, have the power to change us from a recluse to a street evangelist the way it did her? Next, the woman does what John the Baptist does. After pointing people in her village to Christ, she steps back and they run to meet him. She decreases, he increases, and they're eventually able to say, we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is truly the savior of the world. Those of us who have met Jesus by the well of our baptismal font should be expected to be able to do even more and tell even more people with even more enthusiasm about what we've found. But do we? I'm trying to, and I hope that if anyone in Jesus's story touches you, you will go and learn more because there's so much more to tell that I'm not telling about each of these stories. And I hope you'll talk to him because he has so much more to say to you about his life than I can ever say. And I hope that you'll tell others about him. This story of the woman at the well explains how evangelization is supposed to work. The woman at the well didn't have any special training. She didn't have a special strategy. She didn't have a team of helpers, but she converted a whole town such that the people invited Jesus to stay with them for two days. So here's how she did it. First came that profound encounter with Jesus. For her, it happened at a well outside of town because she kept herself open to him. In the exchange that followed, he helped her see that what human beings really long for is eternal life, that God is loving and welcoming and that she needs to change her life. She directs them to have their own encounter with Jesus Christ like hers. Once they have their own encounter, they're hooked, and they spend two days with him. So the marching orders are first, spend time with Christ. You do that by going to confession, by looking at him in the scriptures, by meeting him in Sunday mass, by daily prayer. Second, invite others to share our joy Invite others to come and see what we've seen, to go to Mass or other activities, other Bible studies that we're involved in. Third, allow God to take over and deal with these people on his own. They're his disciples, not ours. And we can trust that once we introduce him, he will find the best way to guide them far more effectively than we ever could. I think something's important to say here. Uh, Pope Francis gave an interview with America Magazine early on in, in his pontificate. It's called A Big Heart Open to God. And he was actually echoing what Pope Benedict has said on several occasions. He said that the most important thing we can do for others is not to morally critique them or not to share with them the most hardcore Christian teachings that we have, or even to start with the moral dimension at all, but to introduce people to Christ. Too often we talk about moral issues first, and we want to show people how right we are and how wrong they are. And there's no way for somebody to come to faith 
if we're mostly interested in showing them how wrong they are. Rather, you have to find out how right they are in their longings and what they want out of life. As Pope Francis put it, we cannot insist only on issues related to abortion, gay marriage, and the use of contraceptive methods. This is not possible. I have not spoken much about these things, and I was reprimanded for that. But when we speak about these issues, we have to talk about them in a context. The teachings of the church, for that matter, is clear, and I am a son of the church, but it is not necessary to talk about these issues all the time. End quote. To read that and to say that Pope Francis or Pope Benedict before him want to be accepting of abortion and contraception and gay marriage is like saying that when Jesus spoke to the woman on the well, he wanted us to be more accepting of adultery or of living with somebody who's not your husband. A key to this approach comes later in the interview when Pope Francis said, quote, because God is first. God is always first and makes the first move. I have a dogmatic certainty. God is in every person's life. God is in everyone's life. Even in the life of a person who has been a disaster, even if it is destroyed by vices, drugs, or anything else, God is in this person's life. You can, you must try to seek God in every human life. Although the life of a person is a land full of thorns and weeds, there is always a space in which the good seed can grow. You have to trust God, end quote. This is Jesus's method with the woman at the well. Jesus masterfully takes a woman who has led a sinful life from a simple conversation about water to a self-examination of her life to recognition that Jesus is the Messiah. He does it without ever voicing his clear objections to her sinful lifestyle. He recognizes the woman for who she is, but offers a positive way to become more of who she is. He speaks in the woman's language about a real need that the woman feels, in this case, for water. Too often our efforts to tell other people about Christ fail to recognize their real interests while making our interests, them joining our church, our group, our club, very clear. Then, rather than condemn the woman, Jesus leads her to a place where she can see the error of her own ways, which is much more effective. This is crucial. We only frighten people away from us by being judgmental. Not only do we frighten people away from us, but we deny them the opportunity to truly repent. We do them harm by being judgmental. The harder way, the respectful way, is the only way that works. As Francis put it in his message early in his pontificate, when Francis was at his best, quote, I dream of a church that is a mother and a shepherdess. The church's ministers must be merciful, take responsibility for the people, and accompany them like the Good Samaritan who washes, cleans, and raises up his neighbor. This is pure gospel. God is greater than sin. The structural and organizational reforms are secondary. That is, they come afterwards. The first reform must be the attitude. The ministers of the gospel must be people who can warm the hearts of the people, who walk through the dark night with them, who know how to dialogue and to descend themselves and to descend themselves into their people's night, into the darkness, but without getting lost. End quote. Jesus did things the hard way, and it's that hard way that we have to follow. But let's end by going back to what Jesus said about the temple. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He was speaking about the temple of his body, John says, then adds, therefore, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they came to believe the scripture and the word Jesus had spoken. 
What was so significant about this odd remark that remembering it did more for John's faith in the resurrection than the actual empty tomb? It made sense out of everything the disciples were experiencing, the passing away of the old covenant and the arrival of the new covenant. After the resurrection, after seeing the empty tomb and knowing Christ was not there but risen, John realized that Jesus' words to the woman at the well had finally been fulfilled. The hour is coming where neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. John realized that Jesus was making the whole world a temple again. The Catechism says these words, quote, presaged the destruction of the temple and the dawning of a new age in the history of salvation, end quote, where God can be worshiped everywhere. A friend of mine decades ago said something that's stuck with me ever since. He said he thinks that the resurrection made such an impact that he imagines that even colors are different afterwards. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but it's very poetic and poets down the ages have seen exactly this kind of reality. St. Augustine in a poetic Easter sermon saw Christ everywhere. He said, Question the beauty of the earth, the beauty of the sky, the beauty of the wide air around you. Question the order of the stars, the sun whose brightness lights the day, the moon whose splendor softens the gloom of night. Question the living creatures that move in the waters, that roam about the earth, that fly through the air. Question all these, they will answer you. Behold and see, we are beautiful. Their beauty is their confession of God. Gerard Manley Hopkins saw Jesus everywhere also. In his poem, As Kingfishers Catch Fire, which scholars say he wrote on Easter of 1877, he saw Jesus in a bird, but also in every human being. Quote, Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. And now Christ is everywhere. That's what Jesus promised the woman at the well, and that's what he promises us. If we recognize him and embrace him and walk with him through Christ's extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Our mission is to produce media that will transform culture in America through Benedictine's mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Leave a review and share with a friend. Help us tell others about the extraordinary story. Visit us at excorde.org.